This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to, or welcome back to, the Bright Focus Chat. Today's topic is update on new AMD treatments. We're having this topic today because there is a new product out on the market for people with age-related macular degeneration. So here today to discuss that and answer a, a wide range of questions is Dr. Edward Marcus. He is an ophthalmologist with the uh, practice SiteMD in, in New York. If you're new to, to the Bright Focus Chats, welcome. Once a month, we have the opportunity to spend about 30 or 40 minutes with leading experts on vision disease and eye health. So with that, uh, Dr. Marcus, I'd like to, uh, to start off today's chat. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit, little bit about yourself and what you do at, at SiteMD. Sure, and thank you so much for having me. Uh, so my name is Edward Marcus. I am a fellowship-trained vitreoretinal surgeon, or a retina specialist, as uh, we're otherwise known. Um, I am a partner in SiteMD, which is a multi-subspecialty ophthalmology practice in the New York area, specifically Long Island in New York City and Lower Westchester County. And I treat a wide variety of both medical and surgical diseases of the retina, which is the uh, neurosensory tissue in the back of the eye, which range from diabetes and macular degeneration, which is the subject of today's talk, to uh, surgical diseases like retinal detachment, uh, macular hole, and things as simple as floaters. So uh, we cover a lot of uh, a lot of different conditions, and uh, both in the office doing procedures as well as in the operating room doing uh, surgical intervention. Thank you. Um, just sort of background, uh, how did you become involved in vision health or sciences? Is this something you've wanted to do uh, as a kid, or how did, how did you come to be? So the, uh, the long and more important answer is that uh, when I was in medical school, uh, I really liked both medicine and surgery. I thought that there was something attractive about diagnosis and thinking through a condition and coming up with uh, an answer to why someone was feeling a certain way, uh, as well as... I like the action and hands-on experience of doing surgery, and there are not that many fields which involve both medicine and surgery, where you're kind of spending an equal amount of time in the operating room as well as, you know, uh, diagnosing conditions, as well as reading images, which is another, uh, or radiology, which is another kind of exciting aspect of medicine and diagnostic imaging. Uh, and ophthalmology, specifically uh, retina, combines all three. Uh, and every single day we're reading images, we're diagnosing patients, we're doing minor procedures, major procedures, surgical procedures. It's, it's kind of an uh, all-encompassing type of field, uh, which is at the forefront of medical technology. As you know, we'll be discussing today, there are breakthroughs almost on a monthly basis, specifically in retina, and there are new ways to treat conditions all the time. So I feel like I'm doing something that is both fulfilling, you know, in, in the... Uh, um, practice of it, as well as feeling like I'm in something in a field that is constantly evolving uh, more than some other fields. Yeah, no, I agree, and and, and you're, you're exactly right. This is a, a tremendously dynamic uh, uh, field of healthcare, and that's why we wanted to have this topic today. And we're very appreciative of your uh, your time today, because uh, as I mentioned at, at the top, there's a new. Uh, AMD medicine on the market, and I was wondering if you could uh, start off by telling us a little bit about what it is and how it works, or you know, just sort of kind of an overview of, of of this new product that'll be good for our audience to know about. 
Sure. So uh, Brolacizumab, or uh, it's, as its trade name uh, is uh, Bayoview, is a medicine that's been developed by Novartis, which is the latest in a long line of uh, medications which target the enzyme VEGF, or vascular endothelial growth factor. Um, it is a antibody fragment, whereas the first couple of medications, uh, Avastin and Lucentis, were monoclonal antibodies, and this is just a fragment of an antibody, so it's a much smaller molecule. And uh, it was designed to uh, retain its efficacy for 12 weeks or three months. So the general trend in uh, intravitreal injections has been to develop molecules or medications that will last longer and be able to um, suppress the um, leakage of fluid for longer periods of time because the current standard of treatment is monthly injections in each eye, which tend to, which, uh, tend to be quite a burden in terms of uh, you know, patient adherence and kind of showing up and getting you know, imaging and injected twice a month for the rest of your life is very hard for many people, especially older people with macular degeneration. So there's been a lot of focus in trying to get medications to last longer. Uh, there's one I didn't mention, which is Aflibercept, which was the last breakthrough in 2011 uh, when it was approved by the FDA, which was kind of designed to last for eight weeks or two months. But, you know, that hasn't really panned out exactly. It's a very effective medication, but, you know, monthly injections still seem to be the standard even for that uh, quote-unquote eight-week dose medication. Brolacizumab, uh, you know, in clinical trials has been demonstrated to retain its efficacy for 12 weeks as compared to uh, the monthly injections of the other medications and um, is, has been demonstrated to be non-inferior. So that's kind of where Brolacizumab has come from, why it was developed, and what we hope we can uh, achieve by using it in today's market. Great. So if I heard this correctly, it, it's still an injection. It's just far less frequent, more like three months instead of... That is the goal. Yeah. I was wondering, uh, is this this, uh, product um, 10... uh, I guess we should just go back one more second. When you said said it's it's non-inferior, does that mean it's it's considered to be comparable to the... Yeah, so... Exactly. So uh, the the results were that the... um, uh, three month or uh, every uh, 12-week dosing of a flibercept was equivalent to um, the uh, every eight-week dose of oh, excuse me of brolacizumab was equivalent to the every eight-week dosing of a flibercept, which was the prior kind of milestone uh, in in indication. Now the important thing to remember is that the flibercept or ILEA was approved and indicated for every eight-week dosing. And if you'll recall, I said that we don't actually use it every eight weeks. It tends to be used every month, even though it was released for every eight weeks. So that's what's yet to be determined. You know, it could be that we do end up using the brolacizumab every 12 weeks, but it could be just that it's a more effective way to get to every four weeks or every eight weeks than the ILEA, because there are several aspects to this. One is the ability to dry up the retina to make the fluid go away, and the other is how long it lasts. And what we found with the ILEA, and you rein me in if I'm on a tangent here, is that the ILEA 
dried the retina better than everything else. So the people looked very good, better than anything else, after a couple of weeks, but we still needed to use it every four weeks to start. Um, we weren't really going to eight-week dosing, and we really don't for quite a while for most people with the ILEA. And we may find the same thing for bolocizumab, that it does a great job, even better job than ILEA off the bat, but we can't really get them to 12 weeks right off the bat, that we still have to go to monthly or every four or five weeks uh, to start and then eventually get to 12 weeks. It's a little bit more complex than that. Sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, the, you know, kind of talking about the, the nuances there. It, it, how, how should patients um, approach this? Is this something they, sh they should ask their doctor about kind of individually, or how, how does one, what's the best way to approach uh, a, new, a new product on the market if you're, if you're a patient? Sure. Well, of course, the, the key phrase there is on the market. So what that means is that this new product has been uh, subject to years and years of uh, research and uh, testing and FDA approval. So that means that it's definitely been around for a while. This is not like a new car that, you know, could have, you know, various parts of its, uh, you know, drivetrain or electronics that just aren't working. You know, it's, it's something that's been proven to work for years before it's released to the market. So knowing that it's available means you know that it's okay. And or at least you're pretty sure because obviously we've had some issues with medications in the past like, you know, Celebrex and things like that years a few decades ago that turned out to not be so safe after they were released. But, you know, you have to at least be somewhat confident that the FDA has, has proven that it's safe and effective before it's released to the mark to the general public. And ask, you know, how they say in those commercials on TV, ask your doctor. So uh, I think that uh, a doctor or physician practices access to the latest medications um, or is willing to use the latest therapies shows <clears throat> a desire to um, to be to try to offer the patients the best that's available. Obviously, at the end of the day, it should be up to the individual individual physician exactly which medication is most appropriate for that patient because. Uh, it may not be the best medication for that particular patient's condition as they present or, you know, if they have various, you know, uh, intersecting conditions like diabetes and macular degeneration, there may be a role for other medications or even steroid-style uh, medications that may be more useful. So I think bringing it up is always a good idea, and that will uh, prompt the physician to kind of explain why they would or wouldn't choose that medication, and it helps the patient understand their condition better. Yeah, no, it's great. I appreciate that. And it's just one of a new product such as Bayview. Is this um, covered uh, by Medicare and private insurance in a way that that's similar to other treatments? Or um, I know it's early, but what what do you know about this so far? Bayview is definitely covered by Medicare. Um, it is not so widely covered by private insurance as well as Medicare, um, the, uh, what do you call them, the Medicare supplements. Mm -hmm. So um, we always do a benefits investigation when we start a medication such as this, which is expensive, um, to be sure that the patient is fully covered. And what, that, what I mean by that is if the patient is somehow not fully covered by the supplemental insurance or whatever Medicare plan they may have, the company, Novartis, participates in copayment assistance programs, which would cover the remainder. So once the benefits investigation has been complete, we will have identified how 
the, the majority, if not 100% of the bill, will be covered for the patient by someone somewhere. No, that's good to know. There are a few, a few coming in right now. Um, we're wondering, um, is, uh, is AMD genetic? Should, should somebody worry about their kids and grandkids uh, getting AMD? Sure. AMD is very much genetic. Uh, there are many uh, different genes and, and locations on specific genes that have been associated with the development of AMD. So anybody with first-degree relatives that have AMD, I always encourage them to start being looked at once they've passed the age of 50. And that means uh, an OCT scan at a retina specialist's office uh, at the very least, to detect the earliest changes, which would be little lumps underneath the retina called drusen. Uh, it's also important to note that 90% of people with AMD or uh, the uh, excuse me age-related macular degeneration will go on to have normal vision and never have any issues. It's only 10% of people that end up with either wet macular degeneration or geographic atrophy, things that could cause you to lose vision. So this is not some sort of, uh, you know, horrific prognosis. You know, 90% of people will have nothing to worry about their entire lives. It's just good to know because you need to be monitored once you have it to detect early changes that can be treated. Uh, it is very, very much genetic. Um, there are several genes in the complement uh, chain and uh, something called HTRA. I, I don't know how deep we want to dive into the molecular biology here, but the, the main point being that there are a lot of genes that are being looked at and there are a lot of genes that are associated with development of macular degeneration. Yeah. Well, uh, that's good to know, and it, and it, uh, it, it definitely seems like uh, if this is in your family, it's good to, good to be informed. And we hear a lot of people talk today about genetic testing. Is there any value in that for, for AMD? Uh, I guess, you know, there is value in information, but even if you have, you know, various gene loci or specific gene positivity, that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to develop AMD. So it's imperfect information. I think the easiest and obviously less expensive thing to do is to just have an OCT scan to look for the early changes. Because if you have genes that are positive, but you don't have any actual physical findings, then there is really no point to undertake any sort of um, preemptive uh, uh, screening programs or to start taking vitamins or things like that because you may have the genes but may not have the condition. So it's not one necessarily leading to the other. Thank you. Uh, uh, we've got a question. Somebody's wondering uh, if their doctor says the words geographic atrophy, is that the same or different from uh, the AMD we've been discussing today? So that is uh, dry macular degeneration, which has hung around long enough to cause the uh, cells of the retina overlying those drusen or lumps to start dying away and fading away. It is different from what we've been talking about. We've been talking about wet or uh, exudative macular degeneration. Dry is another form of macular degeneration that is advanced, so another part of that 10%. Uh, that is not treated with injections, or at least not so far. Um, and it is just kind of the very, very slow march of, uh, of, of fading away of the retinal cells above the kind of inactive lumps of, of uh, drusen. Mm -hmm. I'll just go back to a minute ago when you, when, in response to the genetic testing question. You mentioned an OCT. Is that something that uh, an ophthalmologist would have in their office, or does somebody have to go to a different uh, a different type of um, of facility. Yeah, 
Ophthalmologists almost universally have an OCT in their office. Uh, all retina specialists do because it is our you know main modality of imaging and, and screening patients. Uh, so some optometrists even have OCTs, but I would not rely on somebody who's not sort of trained to look at it regularly to find things that are subtle. I think the best bet is a retina specialist, if not a general ophthalmologist who sees a lot of folks with uh, AMD. Great. And one very basic question we get here a lot is, can someone prevent AMD from occurring in the first place? From occurring, no. Uh, I mean, there there is, I guess, a genetic predisposition. There are things you can do to kind of keep it uh, in very early stages, like avoiding uh, sunlight, using sunglasses, um, having a, a diet rich in, you know, antioxidants, fruits and vegetables, uh, avoiding smoking. Smoking is a very, very strong risk factor for developing macular degeneration. But, you know, some people may be so genetically predisposed to it that they're going to get it anyway. Um, it's kind of kind of like cancer uh, in a way. Not, not not in its seriousness. It's obviously not a life-threatening condition. But, you know, people have a certain genetic predisposition, and there are lifestyle factors that will either push you over the edge or or will not, depending on how much of a risk you have based on your genetic code. Oh, thank you. And if somebody has re- has already experienced vision loss uh, from AMD, can that be reversed at all? Uh, usually, yes. Uh, it depends on, obviously, what the vision loss is from. If there is a lot of fluid and exudation underneath the retina from wet macular degeneration, then injections can make that vision improve rapidly. If the vision loss is from that second uh, entity we talked about, geographic atrophy, which is kind of the slow death of retinal cells, then it's not reversible because those cells can't come back. You can sort of only arrest it in its path. Thank you. One question that several of our listeners have asked today is, uh, can AMD spread from one eye to the other? No, no, it cannot. It is not. Uh, it doesn't spread at all. Uh, it's just that one eye has the same risk as the other eye. So it is very, very unusual to see macular degeneration only in one eye. You'll kind of see the same condition developing almost simultaneously. Um, will it be in the same stage? Not always. Uh, it may be that one eye kind of progresses more rapidly than the other, but it's not spreading. It's just that it's kind of coming from the same risk pool. Mm-hmm. And we have a couple of questions that relate to AMD and other uh, uh, conditions of the eye, such as glaucoma or cataracts. So in terms of cataracts or glaucoma, does do either of those cause AMD, or does AMD cause glaucoma or, or cataracts? Or, uh, are there connections uh, between those three no, conditions? No, there, there is no causal relationship, and the genes are not the same, but you see a lot of the same people developing them because they have a lot of the same risk factors. For instance, age is a risk factor for all three, for glaucoma, cataract, and macular degeneration, but one does not cause the other. Uh, older folks that have had a lot of sun exposure may be equally you know, prone to developing macular degeneration and cataracts, but again, one does not have anything to do with the other. They just kind of happen uh, alongside each other very commonly. No. And I know uh, you mentioned you're up in New York and uh, Bright Focus is, is, is in Maryland. And, you know, this time of year, the northern the northern half of the U.S., um, it gets dark. It gets, it gets it's dark early and it's 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 cold and it kind of leads to a lot of, um, of isolation, maybe people not getting out as much. Do you have any any tips um, that you share with the patients you see about how to to kind of handle that world getting a little smaller th- this time of year? 
Sure. Um, I mean, the the key obviously is increasing light. So you know, uh, being in well lit areas or having you know good strong LED type lights at home that brightly illuminate um, you know uh, whatever you may be doing, whether it's cooking, sewing, reading, anything like that. Um, the darkness is is certainly a problem. Uh, some people simply migrate south. You know, obviously a lot of snowbirds come from New York and Maryland, head down where it's a little bit brighter and a little sunnier. Um, there are certain types of glasses which help you see a little bit better in the dark, which a low vision specialist and optometrist may be able to recommend uh, that uh, reduce glare or may brighten some objects. I think having, uh, an, if possible, having a newer automobile with LED-style headlights that illuminate, uh, you know, very powerfully or best approximate the, you know, the um, light of the sun. Uh, so there are definitely things you can do. Uh, I, I guess you can boil them down into seeking sunlight, number one. Uh, so uh, doing most of your activities during the day. Uh, two is using bright and uh, powerful uh, lighting technology. And number three is using the pro- appropriate glasses to uh, bring things into focus. Yeah, that's good to know. I'm kind of staying on that, that point for a minute. It seems like when somebody is out... Uh, you know, you can get a real bright glare from the snow, or it seems like the sun can get at a really low, kind of tough angle in the sky. Um, any any tips for how um, someone could best uh, best manage that? Sure. Uh, polarized sunglasses are always good. Uh, I think a lot of the sunglass brands will offer polarized lenses, especially in prescriptions. I think that cuts down a lot of the glare. Just kind of knowing <clears throat> how to avoid, <coughs> excuse me, those con- those conditions, like you know. Driving on the highway at you know heading east at 7 a.m. is always a tough one because you're seeing that sun peak over the horizon. You know those type of things. Just kind of knowing you know when you're going to be in that situation and using the polarized lenses when you can. Yeah. And kind of final question about driving. Um, I, I can imagine this to be a very difficult topic in in among families when somebody should restrict or um, uh, no or stop stop driving. In, in your practice, do you? Have these conversations with families, or any any tips for how to navigate uh, what I, what I would imagine would be a very very challenging uh, topic for families to discuss. Sure, the easiest thing is to go by the law. Um, every state has its own laws about uh, driving. In New York State, you have to be 2050 or better in one eye, and have a certain visual field <laughs> to have an unrestricted driver's license, or 20. 70 or better to have a restricted driver's license. What I do is advise patients that based on their exam and based on our findings that it's either legal or illegal for them to drive. I mean, we obviously don't call the police. It's not our job to enforce the law. Uh, But we would advise patients that if their vision is not good enough to drive, then they could be subject to prosecution and even, you know, severe penalties like incarceration if they get into some sort of accident or endanger someone's life because they're driving uh, inappropriately. How should someone raise concerns to, you know, a family member or a close friend ab- about their driving, you know, about age, you know, vision, vision-related uh, driving uh, concerns? I think the easiest thing is to stick to the facts because then you're not, you know, imposing your opinion or your beliefs on somebody. If if the law in your state uh, clearly says that the the individual in question is not allowed to drive, then 
you can simply tell the family member that they risked being in jail, and that's the truth. No one wants to no one wants to go to jail. They're endangering other people's lives, not their own. You know, you, uh, someone who's driving illegally is not putting just themselves at risk, but anyone else who's on the road or on the street. So, you know, you don't want to use guilt so powerfully, but you know, it's they, they risk so many things that it's just not worth it if they're not allowed to drive. Yeah, very understandable. And you know, kind of, uh, keeping on, kind of continuing from the driving question, it would seem like there's a lot of caregiving challenges um, with with a uh, with AMD, particularly for patients that that have um, need need to get regular injections. Any tips on how care, you know? We all want to follow the doctor's advice, but it's often it's often challenging. So particularly, you know, when it involves uh, getting rides or how can someone best follow uh, uh, a doctor's treatment plan for AMD? So the best thing to keep in mind or the best motivating factor is the best results come from sticking to the plan. Um, you know, we uh try to offer as much flexibility in scheduling as we possibly can. I mean, I, someone like myself, I go to seven or eight different offices. So, chances are I'm I'm in your neighborhood at some point, you know. So, we got to just get you in there because uh you know, the 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 easiest way as in your last question to in, to encourage people to participate positively in the treatment plan is to give them the alternative. Um, if somebody knows that if I don't do this, I'm just going to go blind, that's an unimaginable thing. I mean, vision is the most cherished sense of human beings, or it seems that that's the uh, that's what the research shows. So your you know most important way to interact with the world is at significant risk. So if you don't do what the plan says, and I'm not trying to be you know paternalistic, but you know we have to do this treatment plan, or you will go blind, and that's it. And there's no question, and it's reversed. It's irreversible most of the time. If you don't get your treatments in time, you you will you will accumulate a lot of fluid and damage and scar tissue, and you will not regain your vision. So, you know, we don't like to use fear in medicine, but uh, sometimes that is the the emotion that you have to play on. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's it is as you say, it, it is the truth. And when you sort of your observation about patients and caregivers on on vision disease, what do you see as some of the the challenges? Uh, in either somebody accepting help or a family member or friend wanting to provide help, uh, kind of you know when you look see those dynamics play out. What do you any suggestions uh, for either patients or families to to make the caregiving uh, partnership go as, as well as it can? Um, I, I guess you, you want your family member to be um, kind of a you know, uh, to be the family member that you know. Uh, yeah, I guess once the person understands that, you know, grandma or grandpa may actually not be able to come to events anymore or may not be able to, you know, babysit the kids or do do things like that, if they can't see, then the person becomes more invested in getting them to their appointments. Uh, I guess it's kind of the same same argument as before that you know the alternative is much worse that if you don't help them out then not not only they but you will be faced with kind of a a, a situation that is maybe not acceptable yeah. so we just got to make time and if you get them to enough treatments then maybe they can start driving themselves and you don't have to do this anymore so uh that's the sort of thing that we we talked about yeah understandable and kind of kind of last question on 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 that thread in your 
experience. What makes an what makes a, a visit to a, an, uh, an ophthalmologist go as well as possible? Any tips for uh, for patients or caregivers on how to how to make that go uh, go as, as well as it can? Sure. Uh, and as as in any situation, having an open mind and and listening to what the doctor has to say about your condition and and kind of being ready to accept things that may seem you know unusual or crazy. A lot of people don't like to think about getting needles in their eyes, but, you know, that's just how things are, I guess. Uh, just understand that the doctor should or invariably does have your best interest in mind and that we're not recommending things, you know, for any other reason. We, we're we looking to make your life better. And uh, sometimes that may be hard to accept, but, you know, once once you've kind of gone through it, um, the visit is easier if you're just, you know, understanding that every step has a, has a purpose and everything we're doing is is to improve your condition. Yeah, I I, I agree. And uh, what, we have a, probably some time for maybe one or two more questions. But we have a caller that's wondering what what's the, what are the best vitamins someone should take if they have AMD? The Arids Two Preservation by Bausch and Lomb are the only vitamins that contain the exact formula that was researched and proven to work. So um, that is the only combination that we actually know is effective. The other ones out there kind of mimic it or change it a little bit, um, but that's the one that I would go with. So uh, before we uh, conclude with our uh, with our discussion. Um, just you know, kind of, and we covered this earlier. But any for our listeners, any uh, you know, should they go to a website to learn more about Bay of You, or is it something they should ask their doctor? How how should one you know pursue uh, you know learning more about this? Either way, there's BayOfYou.com, which is uh, easy, and then that contains all the relevant links and things. Uh, if you put Get Bay of You into Google, you'll come up with the various research studies. Google is pretty well curated on that. Um, and obviously asking your, your eye care provider about it would direct you to somebody who will give you kind of a professional, um, you know, non-invested answer. In, in other words, yeah. someone who that's not financially going to benefit from Bayview, uh and is knowledgeable about it. That's kind of like we're doing here. Uh, that's, yeah. that's the best way to learn about it. So to, uh, to Dr. Marcus, as we conclude today, do you have uh, sort of final Final thoughts about um, uh, you know the, the topic today, or when you is there sort of like recurring piece of advice that you like to share with your patients, or any sort of big picture uh, observation you'd like to leave with us today? I think that the uh, the theme I would go with is trust the system. Um, there is a pretty good network of physicians and medications and treatments that are uh, available and and covered under your insurance plan and the protocols that are laid out there have been researched for decades. Uh, trust in that work that's been done because that is the ideal way to achieve the best vision possible. Um, we've answered all the, question all, all the questions hundreds and thousands of times, and we've come up with the best possible way to approach this. So let your doctor uh, guide you. If you want, get a second opinion, but or a third or a fourth opinion, but ultimately trust the system because we've proven um, many different times over, you know, how best to manage these conditions. And there are hundreds of doctors out there that are very eager to help you, you know, kind of live your best life possible 
with the clearest and, and optimal vision. Well, that's great. That's, it's great advice, particularly in the in the face of conditions such as AMD that they can be. I'm sure can be very stressful for for people. So that, that that that's great advice. And Dr. Marcus, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. I think you gave gave our audience a lot of uh, a lot of good information about um, uh, new and, and and other treatments for AMD and a lot of um, uh, questions about um, how to how to better understand and. And and uh, and manage manage their vision health. So I just want to thank you for being so generous, uh, so generous the chance with your time. to be here. Great. We we will be back uh, in late January for um, the 2020 series of Bright Focus chats. And on that note, just want to thank our audience and thank Dr. Marcus for for being a part of us today. And uh, thank you very much. Bye bye. Thanks again. Bye bye. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.